The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. To me, it's not a question of how can we get to every Russian. The question is how can we get stuff into networks that is sufficiently true and credible and interesting for Russians to redistribute it themselves. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 24th, 2022. Today, we're bringing you another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on the online information ecosystem. Over the last few weeks, We've talked a lot about the war in Ukraine on this series. How the Russian, Ukrainian, and American governments are leveraging information as part of the conflict. How tech platforms are navigating the flood of information coming out of Ukraine and the crackdown from the Kremlin. And how open source investigators are documenting the war. On today's episode, we're going to talk about getting information into Russia during a period of rapidly increasing repression by the Russian government. Evelyn Dueck and I spoke with Thomas Kent, a former president of the U.S. government-funded media organization Radio Free Europe Radio Liberty, who now teaches at Columbia University. He recently wrote an essay published by the Center for European Policy Analysis titled How to Reach Russian Ears, suggesting creative ways that reporters, civil society, and even the U.S. government might approach communicating the truth about the war in Ukraine to Russians. This was a thoughtful and nuanced conversation about a tricky topic, whether and how democracies should think about leveraging information as a tool against repressive governments, and how to distinguish journalism from such strategic efforts. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 24th, Getting Information into Russia. I wanted to start off by doing a little bit of of scene setting about the role of information right now in the war in Ukraine and in how uh, information has really been cut off uh, within Russia. Could you give us just an overview of how, you know, news, social media posts, reportage has played a role and what the Russian government has done recently to clamp down on information? Because I think that will help uh, set the stage for why this is such an important topic. The Russian government has done everything it can to present to Russian citizens its own view of this war and to block out all alternative points of view. So Russian television has its description of the war as a uh, well, not as a war to begin with, because they they forbid the use of war, but they present it as a special military operation that Russia has been forced to carry out for its own protection. And according to the Russian version of events, there are no intentional attacks on civilians. Russian troops are being welcomed. The Ukrainians are launching horrific attacks on Russian-speaking people living in the Donbass area, the provinces in eastern Ukraine that have been pretty much occupied and run by Russian separatists since uh, 2014. So that's, that's their view that they are pushing very hard. And in the other dimension, they're trying to block out social networks, websites, broadcasts, just about anything that could bring an alternative version of what's happening. 
So I think the broad theme of the conversation today is going to be how to reach different populations like the ones that you've just talked about who are getting a skewed view of reality and the role of information in these kinds of events. But I think it'd be useful to talk a little bit first about your background and where you're coming from so that our listeners can understand your perspective. So I'm hoping you could talk a little bit about what Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty are and what your role as president entailed. Sure. Well, for my own background, I worked for 100 years for the Associated Press as a reporter based in Moscow and Tehran and Brussels and Sydney, and was the international editor of the AP and also the ethics editor of the AP. And then I became president of Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, which is an international broadcaster and web news service and social media news service and television news service that is funded by the U.S. government and is based in Prague. And Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty broadcasts to about 20 countries using all these different forms of media in about 25 languages. And these countries include almost all of the nations of the former Soviet Union and East Europe, the Balkans, Iran, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. So it's a a pretty sprawling operation with about 1,600 people, many of them based in the countries where RFERL is creating coverage and, and directing its, its coverage to. RFERL's mission is to essentially create a free press in countries where the free press does not exist or where it's a very embryonic kind of media. And the problem is, of course, that often the countries that we are serving Uh, The governments there do not at all appreciate the fact that we are serving them. So uh, some of them have tried to block out our broadcasts, our websites, our social media activities for years. Uh, They harass our correspondents in many places, those places where we're allowed to have bureaus at all. So it's a pretty dynamic relationship with the countries that we provide our coverage for. And the coverage focuses above all on internal events in those countries. There's also something separate called the Voice of America, which focuses on U.S. news for international audiences. But what we focus on at Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and what causes so many problems for RFERL, is that we are focusing on events inside these countries. So what are the historical origins of RFERL? Because I think that that is relevant here uh, to talking about its role. And how does that inform its mission? And I'm wondering if that mission has changed over time since it was first set up. Right. Well, we say RFERL, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, but it used to be two separate operations. One was Radio for Europe, which was aimed at East Europe, and then Radio Liberty, which was aimed at the Soviet Union. And both of these operations started after the Cold War as ways of penetrating the Iron Curtain with news and information. Later on, uh, other areas were added, the Balkans, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and so forth. But it originated as something to penetrate the Iron Curtain. The official law that determines or that rules the the operation of, of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, is the International Broadcasting Act, which states that they shall be honest and project an independent image. They should be independent. They have independent editorial operations. When I was president of RFERL, nobody could tell me what we should put on the air, even though it was paid for by Congress. The State Department or others could not come and say, you know, you need to turn up the heat on this regime or that regime or take it easy on this or Here's some themes that you should you should emphasize. And people expressed a desire for us to do various things. But uh, as president of RFERL, I, I recognized that I had the, the right to decide exactly what we would or wouldn't do. Now, of course, even though we at RFERL were very much dedicated to providing content that was absolutely true and verifiable and so forth, that didn't mean that it wasn't viewed as propaganda by the various countries that we were putting content into. And so RFERL is commonly accused of being an American propaganda outfit by governments that don't like what RFERL produces. 
That's that's to be expected. And RFERL does have, the company makes no secret of it, a strong position in favor of human rights, in favor of freedom of the press, freedom of speech, and so forth. So those are the kind of stories we look for, which makes our content, of course, something that to governments in, in many of these countries, something that's that's frightening. So the way I look at it is that at RFERL's end, we put in true journalism on subjects that we think are important. And this is perceived at the other end by certain governments to be propaganda, but it is perceived by the populations of these countries to be true reporting of events inside their countries that they're not getting from their own government-controlled news media. I should add that RFERL, even though it's financed by Congress, is a private company. It's organized as a private company. It's a Delaware-based company. Employees of RFERL are not government employees. They're not civil service people. They are just ordinary Americans and, and citizens of all the countries that, that we serve. And you know, we carry uh, ordinary passports, not diplomatic passports. We don't have any kind of um, you know, privileges, diplomatic kind of privileges. And that's important to understand as well. The, this is a, um, organized as a private company. Now, one of the reasons that it's organized as a private company is that early in its existence, RFERL was a CIA front. It was ostensibly a private company uh, that was secretly financed by the CIA. When I was in high school, I remember seeing commercials on television, con contribute to Radio for Europe. Uh, Radio for Europe needs your financing to help pierce the Iron Curtain. And I sent money when I was in high school to it. I got it back when I was president of RFERL. But uh, the whole thrust of the campaign at the time was that this is a private company that needs money from ordinary Americans. Of course, at that time, it did not really need any money at all since the CIA was paying for it. But then some decades later, uh, it became known that these were secretly financed organizations. And eventually, it was decided that Congress would finance them openly. And that's what it does now. I think that's a, a great overview to the the question that I wanted to ask next, which is sort of how to think about the relationship between RFERL and the U.S. government in context of the broader discussions that we're having right now around Russian state media. Um, and I'm I'm being a little intentionally provocative in in framing that comparison, but I, I do think that it's it's an interesting area to plumb. So, of course, the EU has placed uh, restrictions on access to RT and Sputnik, which are Russian government-funded propaganda outlets. Uh, within the bloc, there's been a lot of focus on those outlets. And as you say, there are you know, real distinctions between RT and Sputnik, which really take their line directly from the Kremlin and, and outlets like RFERL that do have uh, editorial independence. But I think this, this struggle is interesting. And we saw it come through during the previous presidential administration, where there was a, a really long protracted struggle um, at the U.S. Agency for Global Media over whether or not uh, RFERL and Voice of America should be sort of pushing a administration line as opposed to attempting to model how a, a free press sort of works through these these questions. So I'm curious how you view this debate and how you think about, you know, where to draw the line between when government funding and direction of broadcasting is good and and when it can be malign, as in the case of RT and Sputnik? Well, I think that as far as the U.S. is concerned, and this is the philosophy of the U.K. vis-a-vis -vis the BBC and France with regard to Radio France International, the Western view is that ultimately an independent newsroom has the most credibility, that if you have got people who are not aping a government line and are not following instructions and and who are not uh, whiplashing their audience with constantly different uh, points of view, depending on what the government tells them to say that day, that you have much more credibility, you're listened to, you're believed. And that is the secret sauce of all U.S. international broadcasting, RFERL, Voice of America, there are three other networks as well. And it's the, it's the approach that, that most Western countries take in their international broadcasting. That said, I think that there is probably room 
for other kinds of communication. I think that the U.S. government probably should have some international media outlets of its own, which are branded as official U.S. government sites, because it may well be necessary in, in, in some crisis for the U.S. government to be able to put out specific messages saying this is a message from the U.S. government and to be able to calibrate that to some military operation, to some diplomatic situation, uh, to some humanitarian situation. And so I don't think that we have to choose or we ought to have to choose. If, if, the, if the government wants to say something, it's you know trying to get VOA to say what the government wants or what RFERL to say what the government wants. It's, it's kind of pushing on a string. I mean, it may or may not happen, uh, but USG probably does deserve some kind of official voice of its own. Okay, so let's come back to the current moment and talk about that a little bit more specifically. You've written recently about the importance of getting unbiased information to the Russian people right now. And this might be obvious, but I actually think it's quite important to spell out exactly why you think it's important to find ways to do that and and what the goal is of, of getting them this information. Is it some sort of like moral duty and, and belief in the importance of truth and information more generally, or is it to inspire action? Or what is the, the goal and the hope of reaching these populations that are being cut off from so much of the information ecosystem? It depends on the messenger involved. Uh, with regard to an organization like RFERL, it is an independent news organization. It does not have a foreign policy. It believes generally uh, and quite openly, and this is on the website, in objective, uh, professional, true news. So what is in RFERL's head when it broadcasts news about the Ukraine war to the Russian population is to give them the facts, and they will do with it what they will. It's not organized to bring about a particular effect. There are other people who are busy trying to get uh, news of the war to Russians who have a much more action-oriented or outcome-oriented approach. They want to get Putin overthrown. They want to create uh, anger among the Russian population. They want to expose uh, Russian television for what it is, for the uh, the untruths that it tells. And they, they definitely want to have an effect on the ground. But that's sort of a different goal set than what RFERL would have. I want to talk a a little bit about the difficulties that journalists are facing in Russia right now. So at an essay you wrote at the Center for European Policy Analysis, you you noted that uh, RFERL has stopped its Russian operations out of fear that its journalists could become victim of a new law threatening 15 years imprisonment for whatever authorities consider false news. We talked about this a little at the top, but of course, Russia has not been a friendly environment for journalists for some time. Could you give us a sense of how to situate these new laws in the broader context of press freedoms in Russia over the last decade or so? Is this sort of more of the same repression or is it a a big leap towards state control over the press? I think that state control of the press has been developing in a steady line since about 2002, 2003, the first couple of years of Putin's reign up to now. It's, it's all been going in a, in a certain direction. There have been more and more laws criminalizing more and more things and taking to task anybody who, is, uh, who's, who can be considered a foreign agent, anybody who's paid from abroad or has any foreign connections. Now they're trying to control specific vocabulary that people use, creating penalties for people who even call the war a war. So it's been it's been a steady progression. Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty used to have local frequencies in about 30 Russian cities where you could just sit in any city and turn it on. I mean, no complicated shortwave from abroad, just AM or FM broadcasting right in, in, in individual cities. And that was all closed off. And bit by bit, there's been a tendency to try to block things from abroad, to require that any news organization that receives any money from abroad or has foreign connections put 
warnings on their content, saying that this is the work of a foreign agent, which in Russian essentially means a foreign spy. There have been individual designations of specific journalists as foreign agents, which can be very frightening. There's been harassment of foreign reporters. There's been uh, uh, the arrests of uh, uh, quite a number of of, of Russians working for international news organizations, uh, including a couple who've been sentenced to prison on trumped-up charges of spying or whatever else. So it's been a long time coming, but it's all, I think, sort of in a straight line. It was obviously increased quite a bit uh, with the invasion of Ukraine starting just before it and continuing now, but it's not anything that's a a total turnabout from what they've been doing all along under Putin. So let's talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of this then, because you were just talking about how difficult it is to report on the ground and in the country right now. And we've been talking on this podcast in the last few weeks about the way that Putin is asserting control uh, and shutting down the internet and kicking out social media platforms that have been vital in spreading information and, and reaching the Russian population and also, you know, for Russians wanting to organize and, and, and protest. And so, you know, this creates logistical difficulties of how to spread information in, in such an environment. And RFERL has a long history of spreading information creatively. Uh, it was broadcast on multiple frequencies to dodge attempts by the Eastern Bloc. Uh, to jam the radio. And in the 1950s, I believe it even distributed information into Poland by leaflets from balloons. And so I'm wondering what the current equivalent of that kind of innovation is. How can Russians be reached right now, if not you know, on the ground or through the internet? Um, I've read some stories about the BBC uh, booting up shortwave radio again, or text messages. And there's, of course, the role of encrypted chat platforms. I'm wondering what you're seeing and, and what would work. Well, there's a whole array of things that are being tried now by RFARL and by all sorts of people trying to get information into Russia. And some of them are, are things you might easily think of. Uh, one of them is VPNs. Russians use VPNs, which puts them electronically essentially in another country. So they have all the access to the internet that anyone in that other country would have. There are mirror sites that some organizations like RFARL use, which is to say a copy of their site, but with a different URL. And so you, you switch URLs and manage to convey in one way or another to people where they can go to see that same content. Some organizations encourage Russians to download proxies, which are little programs that they can put on their computer or on their phone that enable them to get around web blocks. More exotically, there are uh, people who are sending in text messages to Russians. It's, it's not hard to get databases of Russian telephone numbers or databases of Russian email addresses, and you just blast away with, with messages to uh, cell phones or messages to email addresses. And there are lots of things that, that could be done in the future. You could send in um, content by, by telephone, which is to say, if you had someone in Russia who wanted to work with you, they could do old-fashioned dial-up, remember that, to a server outside the country where you could transmit stuff that would, um, what they could then redistribute. And it's very important, this, this point about redistributing. Russia is a place that has lived on rumor for you know, decades, if not centuries. Uh, during the Soviet period, there was, then as increasingly now, people understand that the official news media are controlled. So Russians have developed a very good sense of how to share information, how to sort of determine, depending on where it comes from, whether it's reliable or not, how to get it around, how to get it to their friends. And for, for years, uh, they have had systems to, to, to move either information or materials around under the eyes of officials. So, you know, uh, years ago, there were all sorts of black markety kind of operations to get jeans and ballpoint pens around when when jeans and ballpoint pens were were hard to obtain in the Soviet Union. Uh, people got jazz jazz music recordings around by various subterfuges. When VCRs became available in Russia, the VCRs became available before the tapes did. So 
somehow all these American action movies had to be gotten around Russia. And people did that. Uh, during the Soviet political dissident period, people got around copies of the so-called Chronicle of Current Events, which is the sort of the, the, the dissident's uh, news medium. Uh, and copies of those uh, typed on onion skin papers and multiple copies got distributed. Now, through all of uh, Soviet history and, uh, and into the present day, there's always someone there with a backpack who's got something to distribute. And uh, information is no different. So to me, it's not a question of how can we get to every Russian. Uh, the question is, how can we get stuff into networks that is sufficiently true and credible and interesting for Russians to redistribute it themselves? That's a really interesting framing. And I, I think one thing that came to mind when you were talking is how these techniques seem to rely on the the cracks such as they are in the sort of system of repression that Russia has built up over the last couple of decades. Um, so I know, for example, that VPNs are nominally illegal in Russia, but my understanding is that it's very rarely prosecuted. On the other hand, if Putin and the Kremlin did decide that they really wanted to crack down, perhaps they could start, you know, actually prosecuting people for, for using VPNs and, and it would be much more difficult to get information. Or another example, I've seen reports of uh, police officers in Moscow uh, demanding to look at the phones of people just walking down the street and see, you know, what telegram channels they're in if they're, they're getting information about Ukraine. Would you be concerned if, you know, as people start using these sort of creative techniques to get information into networks within Russia about endangering the people in Russia who are using these techniques. You know, if you're if you're in Russia and you get a text from an American using this this mass text program about what's happening in Ukraine, is there a risk that, you know, if a police officer comes by and checks your phone that 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 Russian could end up in real trouble? There is that risk. That may be the reason that uh, some of the people who receive these texts respond immediately with all sorts of obscenities and say, I love Russia and I'm for Putin and I'm for Putin and who are you, Western propagandist? It may be, of course, it may be their genuine feeling, but it may also be so that if someone looks at their phone or someone's monitoring their SMS traffic, they can say, yeah, I got this and this is my response. So I want to ask a little bit more then about who the audiences are for this kind of messaging, whether it is to uh, to a certain extent preaching to the converted to send these kinds of messages in especially given you know the built up years of propaganda within russia that might not make people particularly receptive uh whether you know whether it's fear or whether it is just purely having you know heard otherwise for perhaps the entirety of their lives are the people who receive this information really open to persuasion if they are not already aware of you know outside information or the fact that the russian government's messaging may not be in fact true is it possible to persuade people uh, in such circumstances well i think there's always going to be people in russia and it's true of any country you can think of whose first reaction is going to be to not want to believe that their army is operating in a dishonorable way. They want to believe in their country. They want to believe in their army. They want to believe in their leader. That is natural in, in, in most countries. So uh, certainly there are going to be people who will genuinely be outraged by this kind of message. But it will raise probably in the minds of a certain number of people the possibility that they're not being told the whole story by official media. And they might start paying a little more attention and looking for contradictions and become convinced eventually that there's something going on. Certainly the fact that, that so many foreign sites and social networks and things like that are being shut down does suggest uh, to a lot of people that something's being hidden from them. And there's also a an anger, I think, uh, at the government that's that's likely to come. It's, it's already come, we think, from the fact that uh, so many uh, social networks are being cut off that Russians use for their own purposes. There are, you know, many, many small businesses in Russia that rely on Instagram and Facebook and so forth to uh, 
to distribute coupons. Uh, there are many bloggers who, who make their career on promoting lipstick brands. It doesn't always have to be political. There are many gamers who need to download a, a coat of armor in order to survive on their next raid. And when all this is being cut off and shut down, you've already got a certain number of people who are annoyed and, and maybe increasingly open to understanding why they're being deprived of so much, that something is going on that they're not being told. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay and I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want 
on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate delete me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So I'm curious how you think about the different kinds of information getting into Russia and from different sources as well, because... um, so the the New York Times has run some pretty devastating reporting about people living in Ukraine trying to tell their relatives in Russia about what's happening and their relatives just not believing them. And, and the Times reported on uh, one man in Ukraine who set up a website that uh, is translates in English to Papa Believe Me, essentially encouraging people in Ukraine to talk to their relatives in Russia, give them a sense of what they're experiencing firsthand and, you know, to to speak with love without anger, sort of giving people a, an instruction manual of sorts. And that strikes me as a a very different, not necessarily better, but different way of communicating information than material coming in from the the West where it might be welcome, but it's not from, you know, your cousin or your son or your your brother. It's a little farther away. How how does information or how do you think about information coming from from different sources? Or or is there a distinction insofar as as you mentioned, this material is going to come into Russia and it's going to be distributed through networks of of individuals that people trust? Well, I think that material that has uh, foreign stamps all over it is less credible, perhaps, than something that appears to come from real Russians, real real Ukrainians, and so forth. Uh, That's always been true. But foreign information sources can still play a role in helping to amplify and to helping to to penetrate Russia with with this locally generated or Ukrainian generated material. A lot of people who would like to get, uh, I mean, Russians abroad or or Russian-speaking people in Ukraine who would like to get more of their content, more of their messaging into Russia, but just don't know how uh, how to how to get onto social networks and and so forth. And and you know, some some expertise from outside might might be handy. But at the same time, I must say that the Ukrainians have been extraordinarily impressive in the efforts that they have made and the ingenuity that they've shown in getting information to to ordinary Russians and, and, and Russians living abroad as well. The, we, in the end, you know, some of the Western experts might, might learn something from some of the Russians who are very aggressively experimenting in this space. You mentioned uh, the gamers, and I'm uh, reminded of stories about how there are, you know, people using Discord servers that were very popular before the war because they were very famous gamers. Uh, now using them as as broadcast channels um, for for getting information in, and you, you know, you were just talking about the different level of persuasiveness depending on the messenger. And so I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you think about the packaging of communication to be persuasive or to be trustworthy. You know, obviously there is the advantage if, you know, people from inside the country or, you know, when friends are talking to friends, that can be more persuasive or friends and family members. But in the position of a broadcaster, whether it's, you know, a government agency or something like RFERL uh, broadcasting into the country, you know, we talk a lot about the content of the kinds of things that they might want to communicate. But I imagine that the form also matters a lot, um, the, the aesthetics of it and the kind of tone. And I'm wondering if, you know, you have uh, any experience or th- thoughts about what might make information more palatable or more persuasive. Uh, you know, I can imagine that certain kinds of tone or, you know, could look more like propaganda than others. And so I'm curious on your thoughts on that. Well, you've touched on a huge debate in the 
in the counter disinformation world, uh, there are very uh, strong differences of opinion about the best approach to take. Some would say, you know, hit them with text messages saying that uh, thousands of Russian bodies are coming back from Ukraine and it's all Putin's fault. And others will say, uh, no, 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 that's the, that's the worst possible thing. It's too aggressive. You've got to think in terms of where they're at. So you have to, you have to message saying that the Russian economy is going to suffer because of this war and you are going to suffer and prices are going to go up and so forth. Uh, and then there are others who can say only Russian and Ukrainian voices matter. So you've got to get some, you know, Ukrainian woman talking about how her children were killed. That is what will touch people's hearts. And other people say, no, 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 that's too, that's too personal. You know, it's got to be more about, you know, Russia has been disgraced in front of the whole world and, and now we can't travel abroad and our cultural figures are being scorned around the world. So everybody's got their theory. The correct answer, in my view, is that all of these are right, depending on the audience. And that is something that anyone who's trying to get uh, information and arguments into Russia needs to think about. You need to segment your audience. And one kind of content goes to Russian doctors. And one kind of content goes to Russian teachers. And one kind of content goes to soccer fans. Another kind goes to soccer hooligans. Uh, and you have to have different approaches for these groups. Now, how do you reach them to the extent that, that there still are social networks that we can really get into and use their targeting tools? That does give you the opportunity to, to target very specifically. Beyond that, you know, if you have content that's aimed at young people, then you would try to get that in on some kind of a gaming site, for example. That would be a way you would distribute that. Sometimes, you know, in, in journalism, we say all news is local. So sometimes people will um, take a localized approach. So there are a lot of different approaches here. And the question is really what message for what audience and how can you reach that audience? You talked earlier about the distinction between messaging by, from you know journalistic outlets like RFERL and messaging that comes directly from the government and is branded as such. I wanted to talk about that a little more. Can you speak to how governments should be playing a role here and, and how the things that they might want to communicate might be different from the things that independent broadcasters might might try to get across. I think it's you know particularly interesting given the political environment inside Russia right now. Obviously, the West and particularly countries within NATO have been the subject of a lot of negative messaging and and the government can truthfully say, you know, look, the the sanctions put in place by these companies are are hurting your savings or hurting your wallet. How in that kind of environment can messaging from governments in the West play a role? Well, there are certain areas where I think messaging from governments and messaging from news organizations like RFERL or the BBC or whatever are going to be largely the same in terms of covering what Western governments are saying and the battlefield news of the day. But government messaging, it seems to me, would have several aspects. One aspect would be that it would be very repetitive and hit certain things very hard and constantly. And it would include a lot of um, official statements and a lot of sort of personal uh, interviews with, with Western government officials. And it would be there to not necessarily be a super popular channel much of the time, but in time of crisis, if, if a Russian would want to know, well, what are, the, what are the Americans doing right now because there's instability in my country and you know, there are a lot of demonstrations and is the Russian regime really going to hold up? In, in situations like that, there might be a very important, you know, kind of urgent message that Western governments might want to convey, particularly if the, if the Russians are saying that you know, the Americans are going to be attacking in 20 minutes uh, and that's not the case. You may need to really blast an urgent message out there and keep repeating it. And at the moment, Western governments really don't have that capability. So I'd like to sort of gauge your optimism about 
the level of effectiveness or the power of this kind of work. And one way of doing that maybe might be to ask you about historical examples, either where you think this has worked, uh, reaching populations in the past, or any kind of missteps that you've seen in the history of these kinds of broadcasters or messaging um, that might serve as, as cautionary tales that help us understand the, the role and the potential of these kinds of tools in this context. Of course, there's nothing historical that really compares to the kind of communication we have now, uh, the social networks and, and all the digital means that we have. But I think if you, if you look in the past, you can, you can certainly see attempts to demotivate um, soldiers, to um, cast uh, uh, whole populations into despair. I'm thinking of things like Tokyo Rose's broadcast to American troops in World War II, or the leaflets that the Viet Cong distributed to American soldiers in Vietnam, uh, they don't, didn't seem to have much effect. At the same time, I think that if you play on or, or use as your basis uh, the kinds of internal stresses that already exist in countries, you can probably get some attention by tuning into things that, are, that people are, are concerned about. For example, uh, I think the Russians got a little bit of traction in the U.S. I never want to exaggerate it, but got a little bit of uh, traction in the U.S. Uh, around the time of the 2016 elections by playing into social divisions that already existed in the United States. And so, you know, there's that there's that kind of thing. But there has got to be a, um, a for for any kind of messaging to be successful, it has to play into a genuine concern. And in many ways, I think maybe in, in the past you know, decade or two, there hasn't been so much genuine concern among Russians that there was a whole lot to work with from outside. That, uh, yeah, I mean, Russians didn't like their health system and some of them were skeptical of Putin and they would like to be richer but you know it wasn't stalinism anymore and people weren't being arrested left and right and and you know for most russians most days in sort of a gloomy way life was okay and some people were were having a good time or a good enough time you know they have stores and meat and things like that that they didn't have in soviet times so i'm not sure that there was that much to pick at or to pick on in communicating to russians now it's different uh, now their country has really stepped in it, uh, so to speak. And I think that there is genuine concern about, you know, Russian boys coming back in boxes and about Russia being a pariah in the world. And there's, there's something to work with. But at the same time, you know, depending on your, on your audience, on the, the audience segment you're, you're talking to, sometimes it needs a very light touch because you don't want people to think, well, the West is trying to to screw us. Maybe we made a mistake, but the, the West is trying to screw us over. And here they're, they're rubbing salt in the wound with all these text messages and everything. It just might make them more angry. So it's a very delicate process of thinking what works with what audience that will not offend, but build on uh, and provide information about the problems that Russia has subjected itself to as a result of this invasion. I don't think that big picture, the Russians need a lot of rhetoric from the West. What could be helpful would be more information and a sense that the West has not abandoned them. I think it's important for Russians to realize that no matter how their, leaderships, their leadership tries to bottle them up, that the West believes in the Russian people. The West believes that the Russian people should be informed. The West believes that the Russian people should have agency and that we are not prepared to leave them as the pawns of uh, the government. And, you know, we just talk to the government and we figure that they're, you know, sort of some spirit carriers in the background. For the West, the Russian people are important and they should never feel that we have abandoned them. So there's a lot 
there to dig into, and I'm fascinated by your example of the Russian interference in the 2016 election, because I think it goes back to the question that we were sort of started with about the distinction between propaganda and, you know, just uh, broadcasting and and communicating uh, news. And obviously, uh, you know, Russia would say that many of the things that we might have talked about in terms of targeting particular kinds of messages to particular populations or finding effective messages are, are are precisely what they've been doing. And if you look at some of the posts um, in the 2016 interference operation, you know, the content of them was not <laughs> so objectionable. I mean, the, the famous things are like buff Bernie uh, coloring books that were just sort of trying to sow a division in certain political uh, groups. Uh, but obviously, you know, they were manipulative operations, they were being uh, misrepresented where they were coming from, and they were information operations. And so it comes back to this question of how to define what is propaganda and what is not, and the quest of finding, you know, a way to draw the line or if there is a line. And I think a lot of the history uh, in this space, in particular for social media platforms who think of themselves very differently from media organizations like you've worked for, um, where they try and be more neutral, you know, they don't have a specific mission to spread certain kind of information or a a specific value judgment in terms of the information. If anything, the opposite, you know, they want to present themselves as, you know, just a platform. Uh, They don't want to be arbiters of truth, which is where our podcast name comes from. And so this quest for a neutral line has been something that they have sought. And I think, you know, we've really sort of seen the collapse of that uh, in the last month or so where they have taken a side. We were talking about this uh, a couple of weeks ago on this podcast to stand up for democracy or democratic messaging. But I'm curious how you think about that in terms of whether there is a line that should not be crossed in terms of (laughs) packaging the messaging or what it is, if there's any objective or neutral way of defining this line between what becomes propaganda and what isn't. Well, I suppose information operations, you know, they're like they're like a bomber, an airplane, can be good or bad depending on uh, what, what side they're fighting on. So, information operations in themselves are not uh, good or bad or sentimental. It, it depends, you know, how you use them and for what cause. So, uh, the tools, you know, can be can be the same uh, on any side, just like the like the tools of kinetic warfare are the same on different sides. I think that the, uh, the if you wanted to draw a bright line, uh, there would be a bright line at disinformation, which is to say intentionally putting out stuff that's not true or putting out stuff that, that may or may not be true. You don't really care that much because it, it accomplishes the effect you want. That's, that's, that's almost as bad. So the first question is, are you going to put out stuff that's not true or that is so slanted as to practically be not true. Uh, I would not endorse that for the West. I, I, I don't think for one for one reason, I don't think it's necessary. Uh, so I mean, even, even before you get to the moral question, which I do have a moral question with it, but even even short of that, it's not necessary that the I think the, the West on the whole, and particularly these days, has a good story to tell and a better story than, than any of its adversaries. Uh, so there's no reason to, to descend to that level. So I think that that one, one clear bright line is disinformation. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with an aggressive statement of your values, that the West stands for this, and we believe in these rights. We believe you ought to be able to elect your leaders. We believe you ought to you, you ought to be able to express your opinion without going to jail. These are quite legitimate points of view. They're not American points of view. They're universal points of view. Uh, they're in the UN Declaration of Human Rights. So I don't see why we can't aggressively advocate for that. But I always think that when you, when you, when you advocate for these kinds of values, you should be advocating for them in the context of the people you're speaking to, by which I mean uh, you don't go to Russians and say, you know, the United States is great because we're democratic and you should be like the United States. It just opens all sorts of questions like, you know, is the United States actually fulfilling all these values and in what ways? And, you know, are we a great example of the application of these values? Is England a great example? Is France a great example? The thrust 
of communication along these lines should be, what could these liberties do in the Russian context? Suppose you were free to express your point of view. And that is something that we think is a universal value that that would make sense for you too, uh, or that you should consider as something that you might want in your society. So I like to think in terms of, you know, so-called distributing pro-democratic content, that it should always be about those countries uh, and not trying to set yourself up as the perfect city on the hill, because A, you know, there is no perfect city on the hill in the world. And B, I don't think they care. I mean, the United States could be the best place ever, uh, but they're not in the United States. It's not it's not relevant. So it, it has to be in their context. So you said uh, at the beginning of that last answer that information operations can be good or bad. You know, it's a it's a tool depending on who's using it. Would you describe the the tactics that you that we've been talking about here in terms of how to get information into Russia as a information operation? Would the Kremlin be right in understanding them that way? Well, I mean, you can use any term you want. I mean, uh, information operation penetrating the the current Russian Iron Curtain. Uh, you could you could phrase it any way you want. Uh, an information operation, I, I suppose, by definition, is an effort to bring about a particular outcome through the use of information. So I would take something like Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty out of that equation because in the view of RFERL, it is not trying to bring about a certain outcome. It is broadcasting news as it always has, and people will, will, will draw their own conclusions from it. But I think that there are certainly activists, Russian activists, Ukrainian activists, who, who do want an outcome, and I guess that would be an information operation. But the, of course, to the Russians, it's all you know, it's all information operations. They, they cannot believe. I mean, within, I, I do not think that you know, into their way of thinking, they are really capable. Uh, a lot of them of really understanding. Talk about Russian officials now. I don't think they're really capable of understanding that there can be such a thing as an independent newsroom. It, it goes against their whole understanding of, of how information works. So I think they would view all of this sort of, you know, from Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty to the to the blackest propaganda as as all, you know, propaganda information operation directed against them. But I think from our standpoint, we can see a difference. Uh, the Russians would say that uh, basically, um, you know, the Washington Post and the New York Times and Breitbart and Daily Kos, you know, are also sort of all run by the same people. So I, I, I think they have trouble with understanding that, that information can be truly independent. So how would you grade how the, the West is, is doing in terms of both, you know, independent reporting and getting information into Russia? You seem to suggest in your piece that, as we've been talking about, more, more needs to be done and more creativity is perhaps needed. But I don't know if you want to give it a score out of 10, but I'm I'm curious for your perception of how effective the current techniques are, especially given, as we talked about before, you know, that Ukrainians have been unbelievably effective in getting their, their message out. Well, it's hard to grade it. And, and the reason is that it's changing so fast. I would have said a few months ago that the West as a whole uh, was not that effective in terms of addressing Russian populations. Although uh, someone like uh, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty has you know, millions of people who do who do consume their content every every week. On the whole, in terms of the Russian population being reached in multiple ways um, uh, through multiple actors, all the different segments of the Russian population being reached in any in any systematic way. I would say the West had done rather poorly. I'm I'm quite impressed by what's happened in the past few weeks. It turns out that there are a lot of creative people. They spun up uh, their operations very fast, the Ukrainians in particular, right out of Ukraine, uh, but uh, Ukrainians abroad, Russians abroad, you know, all sorts of all sorts of actors who are really doing a lot of creative work, very creative work, sort of making it up as they go along. It would have been nice to have these capabilities locked and loaded. I see that uh, a lot of people are experimenting 
you know, gee, would this work? Gee, would this work? Oh, we only had a website that worked like this. Could we, could we get really quick a, a website that worked like this? I think a lot of that could have been done in advance. But the, the speed at which a lot of this has been ramped up is, is, is pretty impressive. And there's a lot of experimenting going on now on the right messages. And some of it will, will you know, be tone deaf and some of it will reach the wrong people. And some of it will, for that reason, be counterproductive. But this is a constantly moving target. But so is public opinion in Russia. That's a moving target, too. And what Russians thought yesterday and what Russians think today is different. And how Russian television is presenting the war today and how it presented it a week ago has changed pretty dramatically, in my view. So everyone, including the Russian authorities, are involved in nonstop experimentation. It strikes me listening to your answer there about, you know, the rapidly changing environment that we're talking about two very different timeframes of messaging. You know, we're talking about the day-to-day response and the, the the rapid response and adaptation to the shifting sands of the current information environment. But also, you know, we've been talking about the historical role of these organizations over many decades as part of, you know, a long-running ideological conflict and uh, a long-running sort of mission um, to spread certain kinds of ideas and, and ideas about human rights and democracy. And so I'm curious how you think about, you know, those two different timeframes, whether there's one that's that should be the focus or whether, you know, obviously probably the answer is going to be both. And then I guess whether there's one kind of time frame over which you're more optimistic than the other. Do you think that, you know, this may not be a, a winning of the battle to change hearts and minds in, you know, the next week or two or month? but that in terms of thinking big picture and thinking about the importance of this messaging uh, over potentially, you know, decades going forward, whether there's, you know, one that gives you more hope than the other. Well, I'm always optimistic. Otherwise, I would have uh, given up on all of this a long time ago. I think that that uh, Russia will continue to evolve. Uh, this is a, a very interconnected world. Russians know what uh, access to information is. Russians know what it means to have agency over their own lives uh, in, in small areas, if not in large areas. They sort of got the idea of, of freedom of speech. When you see thousands of people out on the streets demonstrating against the war, that doesn't mean necessarily that they think that that's going to happen tomorrow. But the concept has arrived in the Russian population that maybe they are not irrelevant to their country, that the population should have some role in what their country does. I've never felt that that Russians are some kind of um, mm, sort of uh, robot people uh, who live in a world, uh, a black and white world uh, that, uh, you know, where there's, there's, there's no color, there's no excitement, there's no feelings that they're, they're just sort of like automatons who, who work for the government. I, 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 uh, I think that's, um, you know, a very degrading way to look at Russians. Um, uh, Russians have uh, uh, have done many great creative things in in their history, and uh, they are increasingly understanding what modern democratic freedoms are. So I think that it is uh, it's moving in that direction. They had a, a good experiment with democracy under Putin. Uh, it didn't work out so well from various standpoints, um, including the economic standpoint. But they at least sort of have some memories of what of what that could be, and and this will this will continue to develop. Uh, they uh, maybe what we're looking at right now is a Putin parentheses, which is to say, sort of a period of dictatorship between a very flawed democracy under uh, Yeltsin and maybe a better democracy in the future. Maybe maybe that's what we're looking at in terms of information. I always felt as president of RFERL that I would much rather be the guy trying to get information into a country than the guy whose job it was to keep it out. Uh, countries are just too porous now, and, uh, and, and Russians will never be totally shut out of information. It just, that, that, that genie's out of the bottle. And it's sort of, um, uh, if it weren't so depressing, it would be almost comical to see the extent that, that Russian officials are going to to try to stamp out, you know, the use of certain words and, and, and things like that. This is, this is not going to work. 
uh, and so you know uh, it will it will fail. I don't know how in what dramatic way it may fail, uh, but uh, it's it's not you know as the Russians would say it's not perspectivny. Uh, this is not going to be the future of Russia. On that optimistic note, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed and on our separate Arbiters of Truth feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare where you'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. This Friday, March 25th, our weekly supporter-only live show will feature a Q&A session with our own congressional expert, Molly Reynolds. Next week, on Wednesday, March 30th, Managing Editor Jacob Schultz will interview Andrew Mines about countering extremism in the ranks of the Department of Justice. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Podcast Presents series on the government's response to January 6, titled The Aftermath. You can check out our written work at lawfareblog.com and buy Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. As always, the podcast is produced by Jen Pache Howell, and our audio engineer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.